Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and this week on the Roundup for Wednesday, September 8th, 2021, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators the past week. Uh, for those of you who are new to the Roundup, we take our stories from this past week's news. Uh, we typically will provide those updates in a newsletter format that comes out on Monday mornings uh, in sort of short uh, snippets on our fast takes on hot takes on some of the issues of the day in these various news stories in both social media and international ed news. And then we go more in depth to the, into three of those stories and three of those themes here on the Roundup each Wednesday in a live chat format here on Facebook, but also repurposed for our YouTube channel as well as podcast listening around the globe. So let's take a look at our first question of the day. Is international education simply transactional? Now, the, this is a perhaps a rhetorical question, as if it should be uh, rhetorical. Obviously, uh, international education should never be just transactional. But I think what, uh, where this, this concept for this question came from is a recent article in University World News uh, written from the perspective of the UK and how uh, a former vice chancellor for, deputy vice chancellor for international at Coventry University, uh, who had over a period of years uh, saw a six-fold increase in international recruitment in his 13-year reign. David Pillsbury is his name. Uh, he uh, worked at University of Coventry, and he has uh, since left Coventry and has taken on a chief development officer role with London-based Oxford International Education Group. Uh, and he, he's uh, looking back on his time at Coventry and what developments have occurred over the past uh, few years, in, particularly in British higher education. The question, though, is, is relevant, I think, for U.S. higher education as well and international education in general. Uh, related to uh, the nature of what international educators do, uh, particularly on, from an institutional level. Uh, in in the, his fear, in, uh, from a British perspective, is that it had become largely transactional. Now, what does that mean, transactional, in terms of international ed? It's, well, just getting uh, bums in the seats, as I like to say in the UK, but it's about uh, more. Uh, delivering more, bringing in more revenue, diversifying international populations, re, uh, reaching a broader range of students abroad. Uh, for those British universities that are uh, invested heavily in transnational education through branch campuses and online delivery of uh, their programs, that has been <clears throat> very much seen from this individual's perspective as the transactional nature of uh, international education. So his goal uh, in how he approaches things now with, uh, and he looks at several factors, uh, including Brexit, uh, EU student recruitment, and how much more difficult, we touched on that in this past week's episode, uh, how much more difficult uh, EU student recruitment has gotten for British universities because of Brexit. Uh, we look at uh, other, competi other com competition for the same students uh, that are marketing their programs uh, in English. And that is something that uh, is changing the dynamic. 
when we 10, 15 years ago, if we would have said China will soon become the number two or number three largest receiving country of international students, uh, most would have said, you're crazy. How is that even possible? But the reality is they have become the number three uh, destination for international students uh, because of their government's emphasis on developing their institutional capacity uh, through their higher education system, uh, developing the programs uh, in English to attract students from around the world as part of their soft power initiative and um, Belt and Road Initiative programs uh, throughout East, Southeast Asia, South Asia, into Africa, and even into Europe these days. So those programs have made a difference and are changing the dynamic in the com competitive landscape for students. And what you see happening, at least from the, from the UK perspective, is that uh, UK institutions are trying to respond to what's happened with COVID, uh, what's happened with Brexit, and how that's changed the dynamic of what they're doing. And that it's uh, it, he's, it, part of the concern is from uh, Dr. Pillsbury's uh, perspective is that the UK is becoming too expensive and that uh, they will become priced out of the market. And certainly the EU uh, shift due to Brexit and the uh, expanded tuition fees that they're going to be paying uh, is having a significant impact on EU student recruitment. So it's no longer transactional, uh, can no longer be transactional. There has to be greater value uh, added if you're going to be charging those, uh, those higher prices. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, the pay, that's the predicament that uh, British universities certainly find themselves in. And once, uh, once we're seeing uh, uh, that uh, we're with a transactional nature of, of, of what international ed had become, uh, at least from the UK perspective, when particularly the transnational education where it's just a delivery mechanism, it's not customized for necessarily that audience in those various countries that they're talking about. So you see a lot of challenges here in terms of that continual um, churn uh, without necessarily that added value. So we'll, we'll see what happens with this, but I, I think it's, we look at it from a, a U.S. perspective. Certainly, um, the, what happened with COVID affected institutions all over the world. Some U.S. schools did it better than others. Some were still able to maintain uh, their in-person uh, curriculum uh, and instruction throughout last year with some significant health health and safety restrictions in terms of the class sizes, more suited towards uh, uh, smaller uh, liberal arts colleges and universities that had uh, had the uh, smaller classrooms to begin with and weren't constrained with having uh, to go virtual for a number of their number of large classes, which frankly don't exist on smaller campuses to the extent that they do on large state institutions. So we're, we see, uh, the, uh, the changes that have, uh, have, have occurred in, in the U.S. perhaps not as significantly impacted. There hasn't been a Brexit, uh, but there certainly were four years of Trump that had negative implications on student flows. There were institutions that realized we have to be much more proactive in our approach. We have to show much greater value. And I think as we'll talk about uh, later in our third question of the day, we talk about uh, deliverables. Uh, and outcomes, uh, that those become um, much more important in the student journey. And that's something we'll, uh, we'll see how this, uh, how this concept of transactional 
uh, education uh, as a as a hopefully a past uh, past uh, uh, a, a passing fad. Uh, let's hope it uh, becomes that, and that we approach things as Dr. Pillsbury says from a more customizable format. That those programs that are offered abroad are programs that are needed in country that uh, that when you do transnational education not just for the sake of expanding the range of your degrees but do it for, with a, with an intended purpose that helps uh, those local populations develop uh, the skill sets that they need to improve so I think there's a lot a lot that really makes uh, makes sense in moving away from a transactional nature of uh, higher education international higher education uh, there was another story this past week, uh, we may cover it next week, about Australia, a uh, number of uh, higher profile organizations in Australia that frankly have always put the financial benefits of international education as the number one reason for doing it. Uh, that's all most people ever hear about why uh, Australian universities recruit internationally is because of the, the, the financial impact it has on our country. Uh, and their institutions. I think there's um, there's moves uh, in Australian higher international ed circles uh, beyond just those international educators who certainly know the value beyond just the financial. But you see international uh, associations within Australia really getting on board with the idea that we in the U.S. certainly reflect uh, well in terms of the uh, the uh, public uh, greater mutual understanding uh, that uh, occurs by having international students on campus, the broadening of the context and the conversation that goes on uh, related to certain issues of the day. So there's there's also uh, a, a real a move I think in terms of uh, moving away from just the financial to seeing uh, international education as a much more uh, culturally appropriate and uh, culturally um, sensitive tool that can be used to broaden relationships, strengthen bonds, uh, and that's something that is only uh, positive for, for the world we live in. So we'll keep, our, uh, keep this as a theme I think we'll see uh, occurring uh, with the years uh, to come uh, with how international education responds to kind of challenges in, in the world that change the dynamics and make uh, the customization, the specialization of what institutions do abroad much more focused rather than uh, and appropri appropriate for the audiences that they're, they're seeking. So that's it for, for question one. Let's shift gears to our second question of the day. And this is a very topical one and it's one that's received a lot of attention uh, in the press. Uh, as uh, class resumes on college campuses here in the U.S. And the question is, why will international students not come to the U.S. this fall? And there are a couple of articles recently that touched on this, this topic. And that uh, one in particular in Bloomberg this past week suggested that foreign students begin uh, U.S. college deferrals as Delta spreads. And this is something that uh, comes in light of the, the backdrop of, as they always trot out the, the stats, a million plus international students a year typically come to the U.S. Uh, and also the state senator asked State Department visa, visa expedition help. And that certainly is uh, part of what I say, this, 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 this particular article the, the, uh, kind of misrepresents in terms of why I think international students are deferring again this fall. 
Uh, not certainly not in the massive numbers that they did this past year, where in 2020, fall 2020, you saw up to 40 percent plus deferral rates for some institutions, uh, and that's certainly something that's was on would would have been unheard of a couple three years ago. So the the opening paragraph does mention Delta variants of COVID-19 spreading across the U.S. Some colleges are seeing a pickup in deferrals from international students as a worsening public health situation adds uncertainty for those already struggling to secure flights and visas. And I think that's something that the broader context of uh, health challenges in the United States is always something that the press will, will glom onto and frankly um, make more, I mean, a lot of more than it probably is. Similarly, with COVID-19 last fall, those camp students that were looking to come to the United States still wanted to come, and they were doing everything they could, going to third countries before they could enter the United States. Uh, you saw students go to extraordinary lengths because, frankly, they're in touch with the universities that they want to attend, and they have an idea of what's what's going to be happening on campus. Uh, campuses are to, uh, hopefully uh, communicating well uh, what the situation is on campus in terms of uh, what um, what will be expected of them once they arrive, uh, what the classroom situation would be, what living circumstances will be, whether quarantines required, all of these other variables that are uh, were essential last year. So there were still students who came, and they came, did whatever they could to get here. This year, I think uh, the you see, ha see those that couldn't come last year plus those that have applied this year and want to come all trying to get in at the same time. And the volume that you've seen in China and India uh, that's taken us back to pre-pandemic levels, uh, record levels in India, uh, in terms of the number of visas that were awarded uh, this for this year, 2021, uh, it's, uh, it's, it really shares how significant uh, the desire is to get here. Uh, and I think to throw Delta into, well, it's happening in the United States, so it's uh, so that's going to be pushing students away. Well, it's happening all over the world. It's not just happening in the United States. Is the U.S. doing a particularly good job of containing it because it, through lockdowns and other measures? Certainly not. But I think it's a different world than it was a year ago uh, for those that have been able to get vaccinated. Students that maybe have not able, international students that maybe have not been able to get vaccinated in their home country know that, that shortly after they get to campus, if their, if their campus doesn't already require it as a prerequisite to start studies in person, uh, they certainly know that they will be able to get the vaccine uh, within short order after their arrival. And in so doing, they would get a, the va a vaccine for COVID months uh, in advance of when they might have been able to do so if they were still in their home country. So there's, I don't, I don't think using Delta variant, unless you're a student that has compromised immune system and other things that would prevent you from traveling uh, in a global pandemic anyway, I think the majority of students, the greater majority of students that are wanting to come are doing everything in their power to get here. It's not a result of, uh, well, they're, they hear bad news about the United States. There's something, something bad in, in, in the news every day if you listen to it all and, and believe it all in terms of the impact that it has. On, on students. So the clear challenge this year is a practical one, flights and visas. Uh, and that is something that, uh, setting aside the vaccine piece, unless it's a prerequisite to even come to the United States, which it is not, uh, not yet for, for travelers and certainly not for students, 
uh, that uh, all you need before coming to the United States right now is a negative COVID test three days before departure. And then once you're here, as we talked about, international students, once they get to campus, will be able to get the vaccine uh, shortly, uh, either the one-shot Johnson Johnson or the two-shot Moderna or Pfizer vaccines in the course of a month's time, uh, and then be fully able to uh, enter the classroom uh, without, without limits other than potentially masking, uh, which may still be required in social distancing. So those things can happen and will happen and will be happening, are happening as we speak on college campuses. So I think where the challenges will be are in, in flights. We've heard about the, the lack of flights, uh, international flights being a challenge. Uh, students making sub, sub, some supreme sacrifices by having to uh, go to a third country before they uh, and to quarantine before they come, which isn't necessarily required here, but it may be required for college campuses. They may have to quarantine again once they get to the United States, uh, depending on what the individual campuses' requirements are. CDC is requiring a five or ten day uh, uh, quarantine after arrival uh, if you are. Uh, if you've been vaccinated, uh, not required, uh, but if but a negative test would be required. Uh, but that, those are things that are, are in place that can facilitate the transitions to university life here in the U.S. now. Uh, the challenge really is on uh, getting a flight, but also uh, before that, getting the visa to allow them to come to the United States. And that has been outside of China and India. We hear the good news coming out of those two countries, but we really haven't seen that uh, for uh, a wider range of countries and so not necessarily top sending markets, but other markets that do send students regularly uh, in the UAE. Uh, consulates still closed even for emergency appointments. We saw that a couple weeks ago. And we saw another factor uh, that was put out last week that over uh, 40, over only 40% of consulates are, are open for business uh, when it comes to student visas. So that's not great for a world that really wants to be here. So numbers from outside of China and India will likely suffer for this fall, and we won't see that until November 2022 Open Doors data, but we'll get a sense of that from SEVIS uh, by the numbers when they do their report, hopefully later this fall. So we'll keep our eyes open for that report, and we'll cover that here in depth, obviously, when that becomes available. So the, the real question of will students, why will students not come, I don't think it's going to be uh, heavily fun dependent on the Delta variant uh, blow-ups in certain parts of the country. It's going to be because they couldn't get a, a visa or they couldn't get a flight. Uh, so those are the real challenges I think uh, international students are facing getting here this fall. But early, early indications are, and we'll cover some of the successes uh, that uh, some institutions are seeing, uh, in new international enrollments. We'll cover that uh, in next week's roundup as well as in the newsletter. But uh, there's certainly a lot more positives, I think, coming this fall than uh, most would hope and most are, are pleasantly surprised so far. Uh, but we'll see what, uh, see what happens uh, in terms of what, uh, what the future might bring for, uh, for international education here in the United States. But I think it's certainly going to be well above where we were last fall not probably back to pre-pandemic normals in terms of overall enrollments this fall, but certainly uh, on, an up, uh, on a definite upward trajectory that uh, can be added to in January and certainly fall 2022. So let's get to our third and final question of the day. This is one that I'll be talking about more in an upcoming series I'm, I'll be doing for IDP Connect on what I'm calling CPR. 
that, uh, that will be an interesting, it's Content Priorities Revisited, CPR, and we'll be talking about a variety of topics that the pandemic, uh, the changing nature of international education are forcing institutions to adjust uh, how they message themselves. Uh, to prospective audiences. So we'll talk about that but the, uh, in an upcoming series, the CPR series I'll be doing. But I want, to, uh, I want to get to the question, how important are outcomes for international students? Because that'll be one of the key things I'll be sharing in uh, this uh, first messages in this series, and that's on just how much we need as institutions to be for our international audiences as well as domestic, but for our, this is what we talk about here is international ed, how, is how much we need to focus on sharing the positive stories, uh, the positive outcomes, the job placement rates for international students. Now this is one thing that every college and university has their own career services office or some variation of that name, but so very few actively track their international students, graduates, and job placements. They'll have overall numbers for how many, what percentage of uh, students get jobs within the first six months of graduation, and those can be used in, uh, in general conversations about outcomes. But really, when it comes to international audiences, because they have different set of rules in terms of what's allowed for them after they're done with their field of study, they can only work in the United States in their field of study. Uh, for one to three years depending on the program after they graduate. So this is something that we really should be honing in on in our messaging. And why does it matter to an undergraduate student who's 17, 18 years old to know what, what the outcomes are going to be for them? Because if not for them, their parents certainly will want to know why they're going to be dropping 160 dollars to $250,000 for four years for their son or daughter to come to your school. Not just to get a degree, that's, that's why, not just for the experience, that's great too, but they want to be able to know it's going to land them that job or that access to graduate education or uh, preparing them for a career back home. Whatever it is, they have to feel comfortable knowing that that outcome is fairly well assured if they come to your institution. So how important is it? And we'll talk about that. Uh, we, for those that have uh, been in international ed for a few years, you might have heard of the iGraduate I, I International Student Barometer, the ISB, and that comes out every year around this time in the fall. Uh, and it shows uh, a cross-section, not just for the U.S., for uh, globally mobile students, and has some really fantastic data sets in it that I think uh, were, um, were, will be very useful as you try and uh, assess uh, what the needs are of your prospective student audiences. And that's something uh, that it, the, the, the survey has had uh, regularly over, uh, has millions of uh, student participants this year, had feedback from over 4 million students. So it's the most comprehensive kind of student, uh, prospective student and student survey that uh, I've seen. Um, the, it, the, the most significant piece, and they break it down by region, if not country, uh, for uh, the factors. Uh, but one of the things that, uh, that becomes quite clear is in, for, for the top five, um, top five criteria for uh, prospective students that are determining where they go. 
the, one of the lines in the survey or in the uh, narrative of the report is, it seems safe to say employability outcomes matter for students. Given an increase in the importance of employability for today's college graduates, international student recruitment has seen a growing emphasis on return on investment, making employability not just important for students, but also for higher education institutions. Employability attracts, it supports its students, uh, uh, employability attracts, it supports students' happiness, and helps integrate domestic, domestic and international students. It also matters for recommendation, turning graduates into brand ambassadors uh, and brand ambassador alumni. So a couple of concepts that I'm very keen on, uh, on including in communication plans is sharing those success stories, um, having your graduates, your successful international alum, become your ambassadors uh, for your institution and be a part of your marketing efforts. So, but of the top five decision factors for students in terms of where they, what, what they put the most weight on, future career ranked top at over 95%, it looks like. Institutional reputation, about 94%. Earning potential, 95%, uh, 93%, excuse me. Uh, country reputation, 92%. Specific course title, 91%. So those are significant numbers. Uh, obviously, those are the most five, five most important factors influencing enrollment uh, decisions on enrollment. Two of those are very specific to employ employability and outcomes. So this is, a, again, a global strategy or, or global survey for uh, the International Student Barometer. And it really, uh, it goes, it's a great data set to get a hold of and just so uh, get your heads around some of the, the key issues of the day. Kind of this also for each region, they do a post-COVID uh, post and pre-COVID analysis on, uh, on how institutions did in those, in the, during the COVID times. Uh, you see uh, uh, the, uh, the content of programs, you see preparing students for the global work world of work as, as, as an important piece. Uh, so some really fascinating data. I always recommend getting a, getting a heads on, head around this, uh, these kind of issues, uh, because it, it helps shape, keeps your finger on the pulse, so to speak, what's happening out there in the market and what institutions need to be particularly sensitive to when they are putting their messaging together for institutions. So this will be well, the first piece of what I'll be talking about in this new series of content, uh, Priorities Revisited. Uh, that's uh, that's going to look at outcomes. It's going to look at uh, um, emergency management kind of messaging. It's going to look at value. It's going to look at a number of different topics. Uh, including COVID telling your COVID stories well, uh, as well as safety and what that looks like on your campus. Those are the priorities I think we'll, we'll see uh, some tweaks on in, or should see some tweaks in in terms of how institutions are positioning themselves uh, in reference to prospective students. On this same note uh, related to outcomes, another survey, a uh, smaller one by Into, uh, came out this past week about Gen Z career aspirations. So we're looking, talking about Gen Z, the, the generation born after the millennium, uh, that um, are basically the first dig completely digital natives. Uh, that's uh, in terms of how they were born and uh, grew up uh, with uh, with technology and such. Uh, that you see um, the 
this into survey sh has shared uh, that the impact of COVID has radically changed uh, the alt attitudes of uh, and career aspirations of Gen Z. This, is according to Olivia Streetfield, Feld, uh, the uh, CEO of Into. And it says that uh, this change will come to defi define the world of higher education and, wor and work. It's absolutely critical that governments, universities, and industry are primed for this shift among young people to support a whole generation that is eager to learn and work differently. Uh, of the 55% that report their career aspirations have changed, 29% indicated their aspirations have changed a little, while 26% indicated they had changed a lot. Uh, said uh, uh, over, interestingly, over 76% said that they want to work overseas one day. Uh, so these are students that are going over overseas to, to, to study. 76% are saying they may also want to work overseas as well. So I think this is important and encouraging for, for universities that can uh, promote their programs accordingly in terms of the ability for students to work after they're done with their degree. And that's where tracking that data is going to be so important. We'll talk in, in the series I, I mentioned earlier, we'll talk about some of the ways you can be doing that, uh, even if uh, Career Services doesn't have international student-specific data, how you can be capturing uh, that those numbers that will help you make the case. So uh, of, of all the students that were surveyed in this into, uh, uh, into survey, Indian students are the most optimistic, uh, with 94% they saying, saying they have a positive outlook on their future. Over 4 in 10 respondents said they wanted to become entrepreneurs and start their own businesses. Very important to keep that in mind. Uh, and some 88% they consider reaching the top of their profession our goal one day. So these are strivers. Uh, these are one uh, uh, in the students today that are really seeking the top, uh, uh, but they know that the pandemic has changed uh, things, changed the world, and uh, there are students that are changing the career, career interests as a result. So that is something that uh, we want to, institutions need to be responsive in terms of how they talk about their, themselves, uh, talk about how their careers prepare students, how their education prepares students for the jobs of the future, that type of thing. So it's really important, I think, in the survey and certainly the, uh, the I, I student or I graduates international student barometer uh, certainly reflect as well that that while, uh, while there's change afoot in terms of what students might be wanting to study or what the impact that they want their degree to have on them and the world, uh, that they're looking for, um, that, that they believe that this, their overseas study experience will uh, help them train for a specific career, 84%. 83% agreed overseas education offers a competitive advantage, uh, career advantage. And 76% said they want to work overseas one day, which we've covered. So I think there's a lot of hope here in terms of what you can be focusing on in terms of your messaging. And you look also uh, with that, uh, that Gen Z survey from Into, so one, of the, one of the data points was uh, there's a good number of, of, of international students, prospective international students that want to become, start their own business, become entrepreneurs. And in the U.S., that's something we we pride ourselves on. We look at the the CEOs of the of the of the tech, of the tech startups of the last 20 years, and almost half of them have been inter international former international students. 
but we look at our process in the United States and we realize it's not really set up to encourage those sort of entrepreneurs uh, and student and immigrant entrepreneurs. Uh, there's an article from Market Watch that talks about the U.S. needs this job-creating visa option for immigrant entrepreneurs, uh, saying that existing visa options are impractical and often inaccessible for those wishing to start companies. So these are. This is certainly something I certainly would would support. Is a, a need to change uh, the. Um, uh, the change the restrictions uh, or open up a category that's beyond H-1B, which really isn't uh, doesn't allow that entrepreneurship to develop because you have to work for a company, uh, or you're, you're, if you become an entrepreneur while you're there, uh, there's there's other challenges like that. Uh, so there's a, something called the Like Act: Let Immigrants Kickstart Employment. Uh, where uh, this is Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren uh, from California, I think, uh, that would create a new temporary visa option and open a pathway to a green card and permanent residency for foreign-born entrepreneurs who bring promising startups to the U.S. Uh, this is also something I think international students could fit into because you see uh, that uh, the, the, the real value of these startups is that they also provide jobs. Um, uh, there's an interesting stat here, according to the Kaufman Foundation, by creating just 75,000 startup visas, more than 1.6 million new jobs could be created over a 10-year period. So there's obviously uh, Canada and Japan have a formal startup visa program, so other countries are already doing something similar, so we're, we're behind on that front. There's an EB visa that's for like a financial investment visa, but it's really not practical for most potential entrepreneurs that are just, just starting up. But it's uh, something that certainly is worth considering, and certainly I think there's value in this. But that's all we have for today uh, on the Roundup. We thank you for making us a part of your weekly international edification, and uh, we look forward to covering more topics like these in the weeks to come. Have a great day. Cheers.